Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to the book of Jude. It's right there before Revelation, the book of Jude. Uh, Only one chapter, and our first study in the book of Jude, I've entitled, Fight for the Faith. Fight for the Faith. Jude is toward the end of the Bible. It's a small book. It's just one chapter, 25 verses, and a little over 600 words, but it's packed with powerful spiritual wisdom for believers of all ages. And Jude was writing in times where false teachers were increasing And we're proliferating and coming into the church, doing great damage to the precious flock, to the believers that had a sincerity about their faith. And he was writing in times where many believers were leaving the love of Jesus for some otherworldly pursuit. One of the studies we'll have is just focusing on that instruction to keep yourselves in the love of God. Why? Because so many were wandering away from the love of God, from that place of safety and security. Judah's writing in times very much like our own. And he's calling us to stand for the truth, to stand for the truth of God's word and to protect the house of God against falsehood, to stand in the gap for fellow believers. And you'll notice when Jude began to write this letter, he didn't intend on writing what he ended up writing. The Lord changed his direction. He wanted to write a short note of encouragement that dealt with the common salvation of all believers. Notice with me in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Remember what Peter wrote, that we are kept by the power of God. And here's another beautiful picture. We're preserved and protected in Jesus. He says in verse 2, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he, ended, he wanted to encourage them. That was his motivation as he started, but it, the Holy Spirit changed. He placed, the Holy Spirit placed a heavy burden and a heavy concern for the believers on his heart. Cults, heretical groups were denying the foundations of the Christian faith and undermining the love and faith and worship of many. Now, when you think of cults and heretics, I want you to think of in, the, in your mind blatant false teachers. They're not doing this by accident. Now, they may have stumbled into it. They may have been lied to. They may be deceived. But when, they come to, when someone comes to you with a false teaching, especially from a cult or some weird heresy, they do so on purpose. And they're not new to our culture. False teachers have been with us as long as, as, long as truth has been established. There is always someone wanting to dilute the truth, 
to undo the truth, to undermine the truth. And like we see in the very beginning of the church, even going back beyond the church, in the Garden of Eden, the devil, the serpent is there doing what? Questioning the word of God, causing, creating doubt that the word of God, that what God said is true. And that's still with us today. It's our responsibility, it's your responsibility to know the truth and to fight for it and to contend for it. And that's really where Jude is as he writes this short letter. The burden that he has of believers being ripped off. And I think that's one of the first questions and the first prayer requests you should have for yourself. Do you care about believers being ripped off and being distracted? Do, do you have a sense of concern for your fellow brother, your fellow, for example, in your own church family, let's say you sit in the general section uh, on midweek Bible study, you come to one of the services on the weekend, you sit in the same section generally, and you begin to notice even after the COVID stuff, and now we're gathering together again, that people aren't here anymore. Are you concerned not only that they're not here, you know, a particular person in, in specific, you go, well, you know, Ed, I don't know their name, I didn't never met them. Well, that should even be a greater burden. If you're sitting with the same people and you're not meeting them and you're not really concerned about them and now you don't see them anymore, where is the care and concern for the church? Because I know if we don't have a care and concern for the people that are close to us, we're really not going to care about the world. We're not going to care about the lost. And that seems to be a theme that God's bringing our church back to as we study through the book of Acts, is a care and concern for the lost. But you know, it's also a care and concern right for us here locally, like who we're hanging out with, who we're serving with, the house of God. And so Jude says here in verse one, he says, Jude, a servant. Circle that word servant. It's the familiar Greek word doulos, doulos. Or you could translate it bond slave. Or again, that word referring to the under rower, as we've looked in previous studies. He, he describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Jude is a form of the Hebrew name Judah, or even a form of Judah to Judas. And the word in its root means to praise. His name means praise. And Jude identifies himself as he's writing this letter, not only as the author, but he identifies himself in that unique relationship with Jesus as a voluntary servant. That's what doulos is, a voluntary servant. And that's what he chooses to emphasize. He emphasizes that relationship as servant to Jesus Christ. Doulos, it's the words used about 120, 127 times is what I was able to count in the New Testament. And this was a title that's often used by Paul and others that they give themselves in saying, hey, look, this is who we really are. I mean, Paul the Apostle, like, like the superstar, if you want to use that language of the New Testament. But he doesn't identify himself that way. He doesn't latch on to that, what you see today in the church, that celebrity culture. Like somehow pastors are more important, they're higher, uh, in, in a different category than other people. In some respects, of course, Pastors are in a different category in the responsibility that they have in overseeing the church. But no pastor is any better than anyone else. And certainly never in a million years identify a pastor as some kind of celebrity. Uh, we're not celebrities. We're human. We're men that are living life as unto the Lord and 
because God has allowed some kind of breadth of ministry to a certain pastor, they're no better than you, you're no better than them. It's best for us to describe ourselves as a bond slave, as a doulos, someone who is sold out completely and voluntarily to his master. You know, those times when you're serving the Lord, you're starting to get upset about it, you're, you're mad about, well, here I'm serving, nobody's helping me, I don't want to do this. You know, you're just copping an attitude about serving. But remember, if you've identified yourself as a doulos, you said you wanted to do this. You volunteered. You, you, you said, yes, Lord, you own my life. Yes, Lord, this is my calling. This is what you've called me to do. Yes, Lord, instead of grousing and being upset about what's been placed before you. It's really a heart check, isn't it? That revelation, it's easy to say that we're servants of the Lord. We can all say it. Just say it out loud right now. I'm a servant of the Lord. You ready? I'm a servant of the Lord. Very easy to say. But you know the depth of your servanthood is when someone starts to treat you like a servant and just expect you to serve. And you know the depth of your heart as a servant when you don't get any human uh, appreciation. Like you do something and you're kind of expecting someone to say thank you and nobody says thank you. And you're like, whoa, what was I doing this for? And you can hear the Holy Spirit going, didn't you just say you were my servant? What, what is it about getting recognition? What is it about people seeing you? What is it about? I, I know what it's about. As I've dealt with that many times in my own personal life, I'll tell you exactly what it's about. Pride and arrogance. It's a form of pride that when we begin to serve to be seen by man, to have the accolades of men, to, to have the applause of men. And anyone that's ever enjoyed the applause of men know that it doesn't last very long at all. Jesus himself being the, the epitome of the perfect servant. In one moment in his life, you hear the cries of Hosanna, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're so glad you're here. We've been waiting for you. Messiah, Messiah, come and save us. Save now, Lord. And not too long after that, crucify him. Crucify him. Give us the murderer. Let loose a murderer in our community and kill the innocent one. Now our accolades and our approval is from the Lord. Would you hold your place here? We're going to turn quite a bit. Uh, in, in our study today. Would you go over to 2 Corinthians? This verse has come up a couple times now in the last few days, and I'm, I'm just so encouraged by it. I want you to be encouraged by it as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I want you to pick up there in verse 12. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. He had a very special relationship with them, a special relationship and a difficult one. The first letter was a letter of correction. This second letter is more of a pastoral. You know how we have those pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Well, 2 Corinthians is a pastoral epistle. It's really the heart of a pastor. Notice what he writes to the church when he says in verse 12, for our boasting is this. Okay, Paul, what are you gonna boast? All your missionary journeys, all your writings, how many people love you, how many people follow you, how many people uh, extol you, look to you for wisdom, look to you for answers. What are you gonna boast in, Paul? What, what is the boast of your life? Notice what it is. The testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and 
more abundantly toward you. We're not writing any other things to you than what you've read or understood. So now we trust you'll understand even to the end. Notice he says, as you also have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you are also ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. The longer Paul served, the more in tune he was with his humanity. The more he saw the glory of God, the more he recognized it was exactly as John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. Dulos. That voluntary commitment to serve Jesus. The dulos existed to please and serve his master. D.L. Moody once said, and I quote, the measure of a man is not how many servants you have, but how many men you serve. I thought, that's so good. It's not how many people serve you. It's how many people you serve. So if it's used a hundred times, over a hundred times in the New Testament, why is Jude using it so important? Why would, why would it be especially important to notice it here and pause in verse 1? Well, Jude, after a little bit of Bible study and a little bit of searching, you'll come to the conclusion, biblically, that Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. The half-brother of Jesus. The Bible teaches us very clearly that Joseph and Mary had no sexual relationship until after Jesus was born. Prior to the birth of Jesus Christ, they had not consummated their marriage through sexual relations. Jesus was virgin born. But after he was born, Mary and Joseph had regular sexual relations that led to other children. Notice with me in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. They look at Jesus and say, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. The word brother and sister mean exactly what they sound like in the English language, in the English translation, in the original words. These are his physical relation, his brothers and sisters. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She had normal relations within marriage and gave birth to other children that we would consider today half-siblings to Jesus Christ. And we know that prior to the resurrection, prior to his death and resurrection, Jesus' family didn't believe in him. And early on, they thought he was mad. They wanted to take him away and convince him, hey, stop this. But it was after his resurrection, and for the reference, John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Even his brothers, I believe this would include Jude. But after his resurrection, his unbelieving family was born again, Jude being one of those who surrendered to his Savior, check this out, who was also his half-brother. It's amazing to think. And I'm sure that Jude treasured his brotherly relationship with Jesus, but even more, his spiritual relationship. But to consider himself a doulos also speaks to the humility of Jude. Because Jude could have written, I am Jude, you know the Jude, yeah, the one you thought, 
the half-brother of Jesus. So listen to me. Pay attention to me. I'm right there. I am one step below Jesus. That's my bro. I grew up with him. I know him. We shared a home together. And you know how it is. I'm sure you've had people drop names before you to try to sound more important than they are. You have people that want to impress you by dropping a name here or dropping a name there. And, and really, the best impression you can make on this world is to be a faithful servant of Jesus. And Jude doesn't do that. He says, look, man, I'm just a doulos. That's who I am. I know who I'm related to. I know, I know who I'm connected to. But the reality, the most important part of my life is not my blood relationship with Jesus, but his blood relationship with me. That's what's most important. That new identity. That, that's how we're to live our life. It, it's not what we have done for God. It's what God has done for us. It, it's not our response, but it's the initiation of what God has done for us. When you get that backwards, then you become very self-important in your own eyes. It, it doesn't really make a lot of progress in other people's lives because other people are not thinking about you as much as you think they are. They have their own lives and their own concerns. We don't want to be in the world in which we live today known as self-important, self-centered. We, we want to be known as the under rowers, the servants of Jesus. That, that is the right identity. We want to be known for our servanthood that connects us to the blood of Jesus Christ because we're born again. He, he, he writes, notice in verse 1, to those that are called sanctified by God the Father and preserved. Great descriptions of the believers, those that are called. Those that are, this, this phrase is referring to those that have been called out of the world and into faith in Jesus Christ. For some of you listening to me right now, you have yet to repent of your sins. God is calling you now, using my voice, using his word, to call you away from your sin to call you from this life that you've been living, to call you to repentance, to call you to life change, to humility. Those that are called and sanctified, that word literally means set apart. And that makes sense for a doulos. A doulos is set apart. He's got a new direction. She has a new focus in life. This word means set apart, to be used for special purposes. And then finally, that word preserved. For those that are under great duress, those that are under great trial, those that are being lied to, those that are be going after with false teachings, Jude just says, look, you're preserved, you're protected. The down payment of the Holy Spirit in you, you're going to make it. You're going to get through this. You're preserved in Christ, he says in verse 2, mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Just a beautiful, beautiful introduction. Verse 3, beloved. Again, another familiar word that Peter used. A word that is okay to use in the body of Christ that you can genuinely, sincerely look someone in the eye and say, I love you in Christ. You can use the phrase beloved or beloved. I have a pastor friend of mine, Pastor Dave, up in Fort Collins. That is the go-to word that he uses when, whenever we talk or when he's sending me a text. Hello, beloved. And he uses it in all sincerity. He's a wonderful man of God. He an angel in the ministry that God is doing up in Fort Collins. It's a great word to use, but it's awkward, isn't it? We don't usually 
talk about our love for one another. And the world is so jacked it up and messed it up that, that it could be misunderstood. But there's a relational aspect to the body of Christ. And, and if you use the word beloved, you're using it in such a way where you're identifying yourself as someone that wants to serve the person that you love. You don't want to take advantage. True love of God doesn't take advantage of people. The true love of God serves and sacrifices for people. So if you truly want to use that word, just so you'll be reminded, no, what I'm introducing myself is my love for you as a brother, my love for you as a sister in Christ, and it reminds me that I've been put on the planet to serve you. Not to take from you, but to serve you. God's calling upon my life. He says in verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. That's how it started. Jude was going to jot him a note just to encourage him in our common salvation, just to write an encouraging note. But he says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. He found it necessary. I think that's happened many times in my life where I've set out in a certain direction prayerfully and God put a burden on my heart and I could say the same thing. I found it necessary to say something hard. I found it necessary to say something hard. I wonder how many times the Lord has placed upon you the necessity of saying something hard, but you just won't say it. An exhortation, a strong word. That's where he's saying, I, I was going in one direction. I wanted to encourage you, but I found it necessary. I, I, I sensed a burden from the Lord to talk to you about something else. It's so encouraging for me to see Jude open to the leading of the Holy Spirit here. He wanted to go in one direction. God took him in another direction. And instead of writing about their common salvation, notice he, uses, he says, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting. Circle that word exhorting. It might be surprising for you to, to find the Greek word here. It, it's from the root word parakaleo. The same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit. I found it important to come alongside of you. That's what the word means, para, kaleo, to come alongside, to give you a strong word in the context here. How do we know it's a strong word? Because of the word it's connected to. That's why I believe the translators use the word exhort here because it's connected to the word contend. Again, you can circle the word contend. It's a very simple translation. It means to fight. It means to firmly fight, to fight for the faith to resist the temptation to fight or stand fast on the solid foundation of Christ, parakaleo. He wants to come alongside the believers with a stronger word of warning about, notice, he says, contend earnestly for the faith, uh, because in verse 4, certain men, a group of people, there is a specific group of people that have crept in unnoticed. Why? Because Certain men that want to teach false, falsely, want to take advantage of your faith, come in under the guise of deception. This is what Jesus described, sheep in wolves' clothing. No, wolves in sheep's clothing. I always get that mixed up. Wolves in sheep's clothing. You don't want to be a sheep in wolves' clothing. Get rid of that. You can just be a sheep. Wolves in sheep's clothing, where they look like sheep, they sound like sheep. They know all the language. They got the Bible. They, they, I mean, it's, it's happened hundreds of times 
where we've identified someone, we've talked to them, they go, oh, but they know the scriptures. They actually don't know the scriptures. They know a few scriptures. They, they know how to craftily use to gain your confidence so that once they gain your confidence and trust, you will follow them, look to them, always go to them. And they take advantage of that sincerity in your life. So these certain men have come in, and that's with a burden. Somehow Jude found out about these certain men that have come in, and he wants to warn them. He wants to talk to them about them. And he wants to help them contend for, stand up for, and fight for the truth. Notice also in verse 3 that he refers to, notice this phrase, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That's an important phrase here that we want to spend some time unpacking. The faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So by the time Jude wrote this at the end of the first century, the body of truth, the body of truth, the whole gospel was delivered in full. Literally the essential truths of the gospel. You could say by the end of the first century, the Bible was complete. It may not be completely put together in one package, but all of the Bible was complete so that the faith was once and for all delivered to the saints. And we see this throughout the New Testament. I, wanna, I want you to follow along. So get your Bibles. I want you to follow along on this stream of thought so you can see how an important phrase this is and how important it is for you and me to know the Bible once and for all delivered to the saints. So let's start in Acts chapter 6. So go back with me to Acts chapter 6. We want to look at a few verses how the faith was delivered so that by the time we get to Jude, it's once and for all delivered for the saint. And every word has meaning there. Chapter 6, verse 7 in the book of Acts. It says, And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the what? What does your Bible say? To the faith. So here the faith is connected to the known word at the time. And of course, at the beginning of the book of Acts, what was the word that they were using? The words of Jesus and the written, the written word of the Old Testament. Because the Old Covenant was pointing what? To the New Covenant. So right here in, already in Acts chapter 6, in the early part of the church, the word of God as it was known, and it was still being written over time, but the word of God as it was known, Old Testament, and the revelation to this point is connected to the faith. Turn over to chapter 14, verse 22. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Really pick up in verse 21. It says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. It doesn't say continue to have faith. They continue to end the faith because this phrase is being used as the fullness of the revelation of God to that point. Are you guys with me so far? Hello? Yes, you're still with me. If you have any questions, uh, email e Pastor Ian after service. But right now, stick with me. So the, the sum of faith is known collectively as it's being revealed, as the books of the Bible being written, you have the Old Testament, you have the 
oral traditions of the words of Jesus by eyewitnesses that were also being written down. You have what Luke was writing, both in the Gospel of Luke and now the book of Acts. Turn over to Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. I think I woke some people up on the radio there too. So you guys can say out loud on the radio, are you with me? Yes, let's be together. This is so important because anytime somebody comes and knocks on your door and says, I've got another revelation, the answer is, no, you don't. Goodbye. Well, we've got an extra book of the Bible, a brand new testament. No, you don't. It's a lie. Goodbye. Now, you don't have to be that forceful, but some of you might choose to be that way because you're not equipped to deal with all their lies and deceptions. And I just tell you right now, nobody has a new revelation. Even what I've shared with you so far is enough to tell you there's no more, but there's more. I've got more. Romans chapter one, verse five. So notice in verse four, it says, declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead through whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience, there's that phrase again, to the faith. The phrase, the faith, is the sum of the revealed will of God, the revealed word of God up to this point. It's also referred to as the gospel many times. If you want to just turn the page to verse 16 of Romans 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, for also for the Greek, because in it... In it, the message of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. I try to put them in order for you so you can go through and just read them in order. In Colossians chapter 2, pick up there in verse 7. Really, verse 6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established what? In the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. The faith is the result of what? What you've been taught. And what have you been taught? The word of God. So come back to Jude now. Jude uses the same phrase. We're going to contend earnestly for the faith. The sum total by the end of the first century the sum total of the writings of God that we know today of the, as the Bible has once, how many times, church? Once for all been delivered to the saints. There are no new revelations or books or revelation to some modern day prophet, cult, teacher. There's nothing more that will ever be added to the Bible. Why? Because by the end of the first century, the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. Turn over to Revelation chapter 21. This is important. Listen to what he says in Revelation chapter 21. At the end, finally, this revelation, God is revealing his word. And at the end of the Bible, listen to what John says in verse 18, uh, chapter 22. Revelation 22, verse 18. He says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life and the holy city from the things which are written in this book. The book is not to be added to. Now, this is to, contextually, 
to the book of Revelation. Don't mess with the book of Revelation. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. And you go, Ed, well, it doesn't say anything about the rest of the Bible. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 30. I'm glad that you noticed. Proverbs chapter 30. Notice even in the Old Covenant, the wisdom of Solomon. Look what God inspired Solomon to write in Proverbs chapter 30 in verse 5. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. If this doesn't cover the whole Bible for you, I'm not sure what else to show you. And you can open the Bible to the cultists. You can open the Bible to the, and you, you just look and you know, they'll just say, oh, they'll, they'll, you'll take them to Revelation and go, oh, you know, just this to Revelation. I'm like, okay, bro, like, seriously? Like, you, you really, really believe that God says you can add to the rest of the Bible, but just not Revelation. You really believe that? Oh, well, that's what it says. Okay, well, then turn with me to Proverbs chapter 30, and let's see what wisdom of Solomon says, which is the same Holy Spirit inspiring John as inspired. The one author of the Bible, we have one author of the Bible, the Holy Spirit. God is the author of the Bible. This is what he says in verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He's a shield who put their trust in him. Now look at verse 6. Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you and be found a liar. And Jude is saying the same thing here. Certain men have come in, they're trying to add to the word of God. They're trying to undermine the word of God. But the word of God has been delivered once and for all. It's not to be added to. It's not to be taken away from. It's to be a book taken seriously as inspired. We believe in what's known as the plenary inspiration of the scripture. That means it's all inspired. Not bits and pieces. It's all inspired in its original manuscripts. All of it from beginning to end. Allowing God to speak. There's a word that we use when it comes to right teaching, and it's the word orthodoxy. You, you may hear it described as orthodox. I know that word's to describe a section of the church, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, but the word itself, orthodoxy, j- just literally means a straight line. It means to draw a straight line or to have a straight rule. It, you could use the word orthodox, and you could also use the synonym sound doctrine. Orthodoxy equals sound doctrine or right teaching is what sound doctrine means. I'll just read these verses to you. You can jot them down because this is so important, church. This is all you ever get. It's the only time you ever visit. The only time you ever listen to Christian radio or flip through a YouTube video. And this is what you landed on. This is so important to understand what Jude is saying here. Not just in the first century, but for us today, for you today, so that you're not ripped off, so that you're not undermined, so that you're not swept away, so that you're not taken away by some fancy, novel, new, weird teaching that is... a that attracts to your flesh and that appeals to you and, and the, the proclivities that you have to, man, I really never liked that about the church and I never really liked that and I got a hard heart. This is so important to land on what's true. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, it speaks of for fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to our trust. Why is that verse important? Because sound doctrine is equated to the glorious gospel, and there are many things that are contrary to it. That's how you know sound doctrine. Many things contrary. I guess you could say in its most simple form, there is a right 
and there is a wrong. And the definition of right and wrong is the creator of the universe who put it down for us in the scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers, turn their ears, notice, away from the truth, and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all these things, endure afflictions, do the work of evangelists. There, there's coming a time where sound doctrine will not be endured. Sound doctrine does need to have this endurance about it. The systematic teaching of the Bible, the regular teaching of the Bible, the regular reading of the Bible, the regular receiving of the Bible requires endurance. Because the Bible cuts to the heart. It's not like reading any other book. There, there's no other book that cuts to the heart of the matter like the Bible. None on the planet Earth. Never have been written, never will be written. The Bible alone is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And one of the reasons so many people don't want to read the Bible is not because they don't understand it. It's not because they don't like to read. It's not because they don't have the time. It's simply because they don't like to submit their lives to the truth of God's Word. Because it cuts. Even you've been walking with the Lord. Some of you, perhaps you've been walking with the Lord with 50 years now you would think you'd be a little farther along than you are sometimes. And how do you know that? Because the Bible reveals, this is an area, son. This is an area, daughter. Yeah, but, but Lord, I'm born again. I thought we dealt with this 30 years ago. And we're dealing with it again today. It's come again. And so you don't want, you got to understand that there's, for many years, I would look at this and I, I kind of just relegate, they will not endure sound doctrine, kind of like to people outside of the church. But that's not what he's saying. He's talking about believers. There's coming a time where believers don't want to hear the truth anymore. They want to embrace the tr truth. I mean, are we not living in a day like that today? I mean, pulpits don't even have real pastors in them anymore. Churches don't even reuse a real Bible anymore. Like as, as we're developing our foundational documents of our church and we're reviewing them, like we, we've got to identify, we, we don't only just believe in the Bible, but we believe in, we believe in the real Bible. We never had to say that before. Like we actually have to put it in writing. This is how we determine the development. Like in, in a past time, 20 years ago, we just say, hey, we believe in the Bible and it was accepted. But now there's so many weird translations out there that you could pick up a translation now to make it say whatever you want it to say. And we want to have that Bible that's most accurate to the original manuscripts so that we will learn to endure sound doctrine. And don't miss this. It's your own desires. It's my own desires that lead me away, my selfish desires. Earlier, it was all this sexual sin and sin that leads you away. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Holding fast the faithful word as it has been taught, that you may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So there is a need for a pastor to keep teaching, keep teaching, keep teaching, teach the truth, teach the truth, teach the truth. And, and there's just going to be a lot of conviction and a lot of exhortation from the word. Another reason why the modern church today doesn't want to teach the Bible because there's a lot of exhortation and a lot of conviction. You walk out today and go, man, that was heavy. Yes, that's what God intended for it to be in your life. It was heavy. That's ex you're exactly right. Well, you know, I don't like heavy. Exactly. Neither do I. Especially when it hits home. 
I mean, you know, maybe what was heavy for you tonight was not all this instruction on sound doctrine. Maybe it was a lot simpler than that. You've just been, you've just been a person calling yourself a servant, but not acting like a servant. And the Lord called you on it. Just by the definition of a Greek word, doulos, voluntary servant, submitted to the master, born again. Those simple words, you're like, oh man, that's me. And you'll either respond to it with humble repentance. you either just say, Lord, please make me a servant. We used to sing that, make me a servant. Make me a servant. Or you'll hard heart and you'll become worse. And you'll start hurting people. And you'll start veering away from the truth. Because one of the truths of sound doctrine is the example of Jesus as the ultimate servant. And then finally in Titus chapter 2 verse 1 it says, but as for you, speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine. So throughout church history, from the early church until now, there have, been, there have always been an orthodox line of beliefs. We, we tend to refer to them as the essentials. You hear that phrase being used. You know, we are in fellowship with every church in town that hold to the essentials of the Christian faith. Even if they're, and there's two, I'll give you two fancy words, you ready? Orthodoxy is right teaching. And here's another word to add to that. Orthopraxy is right worship or right actions. And, and so the orthopraxy, it does vary among different churches uh, where they still have, we may be differing with people in their orthopraxy, but we agree orthodox. And I know those are fancy words, but one day you'll be able to throw it on some trivia game and you'll win. Just understand. You'll be able to win because you, as really simple, simple, you have the right action. You have the right belief. It's going to lead to the right action. And so other churches, as we hold to the essentials of the Christian faith, their, their practice may be different than ours. And you should be okay with that. The practice may be different. They may do things a little differently, and they may do things a lot differently, but they believe in the essentials. There are certain truths that make a true Christian, and if you miss out on them, you're not a true believer. Things like the deity of Christ, the eternal, that, that is the doctrine of eternal God in human flesh. The virgin birth, Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit in Mary, conceived. The Trinity, God revealing himself as one, Three persons. The vicarious atonement of Jesus, which basically means Jesus died in your place because you're a sinner and you need forgiveness. That's an essential. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is alive. The tomb is empty. Judas saying, don't let anyone come with lies to rip you off. Jude had what we call discernment. He was going to write this group of believers an encouraging note, but the Holy Spirit said, stop. I want you to write to them about the un these certain men that have come in. And notice again at the end of verse 4, as hard as it is for you to accept this, especially those of you involved in a cult or in false teaching, you need to receive the word of God today. These certain men that crept in unnoticed Long ago marked out for condemnation, they're described, notice, as ungodly men. False teaching is ungodly. False teaching is ungodly. And for them, they turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That licentiousness was the sinful behavior 
Licentiousness has a sexual connotation to it, as did many of the other verses related to sound doctrine we read. So it was appealing to the flesh to get you away from the true essence of the holiness of Jesus Christ and his identity and his character and his nature. Every cult and false teaching, no matter what fabrication, how pretty their pamphlets are, what the root of they, what, what guy started it, what gal started it, it, it doesn't matter. Every false teacher, every heretic, every cult has the same fundamental issue. The same issue. They don't have a right understanding of who Jesus Christ is. That is the essence of veering away from the faith. They don't receive the truth that Jesus himself said about himself, which is what got people in trouble when they were in his very presence. They didn't receive him for who he said he was and who he proved he was and who he demonstrated he was. Jude had discernment and we need discernment today. Church, I can't emphasize it enough. Church that's here, church that'll be watching, listening, you're live with us right now. I can't emphasize, you must know this book. This is the key. This is it. This book is more important than any other book you might read about it. This book is more important than any sermon you hear from it. This book, master the book. Read your Bible every day. Pray every day. You don't need to try to be a scholar you don't need to understand every Greek word. You, you don't have to understand every nuance and answer every difficult question. If you just spent the rest of your life reading the Bible and worshiping Jesus, you'll be better off for it. But you know, when you read your Bible and pray every day and you make G knowing Jesus a priority, you automatically grow. You're reading things, go, oh, that's great. Oh, I want to do that. Yeah, I should step that. Oh, I don't want to have that in my life. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? By washing it with the water of the word. And as the world gets darker, we need more cleansing of the word. We need more understanding. We need to see things happening in the world from a biblical perspective so that when we understand it, then we can act properly. There's a lot of Christians today even some of my friends that are not acting properly. They're abandoning the simplicity of the gospel. They're not acting properly. They're getting involved in things that have nothing to do with the gospel. Nothing to do with washing their mind with the word. Nothing to do to helping people grow in grace. Grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's nobody, they're not able to stand up and say, grace, grace. Instead, it's law, law. Anger, anger. Control, control. Fight, fight. You see, Jude's definition of fight is different than what you think it is. And, and that's why we titled our series, Let's Fight on Purpose. Because some people saw that and go, yeah, it's about time. Finally, finally, Ed, you finally come. It's time to fight. It is time to fight. But we need to fight God's way. With God's weapons. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. 
And one of the greatest things that you can do today to contend for the faith is to know it and grow in it. So Father, we know that truth matters. And we know that you are allowing us to live in this epic generation. It's your will that we're alive today. We were born for this season. And we certainly want to fight. We want to stand strong and contend for the faith. We we want to be able to know you so well that a counterfeit will be completely obvious. But then we have those desires uh, you know, licentiousness on God. Like we have this te- these temptations. We, we have these weaknesses, God, that are easily preyed upon by false teachers. So help us. We don't want, we want to endure. Hupomone. We, we want to bear up under the weight of the situations, but we also want to persevere as we receive the word. We want to be changed. Even tonight, God, even now, you are changing us, molding us and shaping us by your word. Perhaps there's even one person that saw the title. Go, okay, finally, we're going to learn how to fight this current culture and fight these current situations. And, and tonight you change them, Lord. You reveal to them it's a different fight, different weapons, different methods than the world uses. So help us, Lord, to walk that straight line, abiding in you, relying upon you for our strength and wisdom. Simplicity godly sincerity. Let those be the marks of your church in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.